Hi, you're about to get smarter in just a few minutes with Curiosity Daily from Discovery. I'm Cody Goff. And I'm Ashley Hamer. Today, you'll learn about why Christmas music sounds like Christmas, what scientists say is the most influential film of all time, and the horrible truth behind mistletoe. This is the last new episode of Curiosity Daily we're releasing this year. And the last episode Ashley and I are releasing while we're still working in our current roles on the show. So we're also going to wrap up today by talking about our feelings and having a good cry. If today's stories sound familiar, it's because we originally ran them in December 2018. But they're so perfect for this time of year, we remastered them just for you. And of course, our recap segment at the end of today's episode will be brand new. So there's a lot to get to, which is why right now, let's satisfy some curiosity. If you've walked into a store in the States in the last month, you've probably heard Christmas music. When you hear a Christmas song, you know it. But have you ever wondered, what is it about Christmas music that makes it so, well, Christmassy? Today, we've got the science behind why hearing a Christmas song puts you in that Christmas spirit. And really, since this gets into psychology, this story isn't Christmas exclusive. It just seems like a kind of relevant example right about now. Totally. So psychologically, Christmas is associated with a lot of sensory stimuli that only show up one time of year. The smell of gingerbread, the taste of candy canes, and yes, the traditional Christmas playlist. And the only time you're exposed to those things is during the holiday season, so you start to associate them with Christmas. That's called classical conditioning. And just like your favorite bands from high school still hold a special place in your heart, Christmas songs can hold a special place in your memory because of how old you were when you heard them for the first time. That's what psychologists call a reminiscence bump, and songwriters use that to their advantage. Lots of classic Christmas songs were written during the jazz era, so even with today's popular hits, you can sometimes hear upbeat jazz-inspired chords, not to mention other classic sounds like church bells, trumpet fanfares, and sleigh bells. And of course, there are the classic rules of writing a song that sticks in your head. Simple melodies and chords that lend a sense of familiarity before throwing you a surprise once in a while. Writing a great Christmas song is pretty much the same thing as writing a great song for any other time of year, only with those little reminiscence notes peppered in. With Christmas music, it's not enough to get it stuck in your head. It needs to nestle deep into your happiest holiday memories, too. I feel like the classical conditioning is also why some people hate Christmas music especially people who used to work in malls or stores. Definitely. Because I know a lot of people will say, oh, they hear the same songs all day. What's your favorite Christmas song? I have a weird relationship with Christmas music. And my favorite Christmas song is What Are You Doing New Year's Eve? That's not a Christmas song. But it's totally played with all the other Christmas music. So I think it counts. Who does that song? Oh, it's, it's an old jazz standard. My favorite Christmas song is probably Burl Ives' Holly Jolly Christmas. Oh, that's a good one. But for some reason, for the last two weeks, I've had Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You stuck on my head. That is a classic. It's a, is it? It's a modern classic. <laughs> it's a modern classic. <laughs> Nonstop. Cannot get it out. But that's fine. In a new study, scientists have determined the most influential film of all time. Any guesses? You know what it definitely isn't? Santa with muscles. Santa with muscles. Yeah, that was a Hulk Hogan movie back in the 90s that my brother and I rented. He loved it. How it, was you, a, it was a dark time in, in, my, in babysitting history. How do you know about a Hulk Hogan movie that I don't? I don't know. My brother really liked Hulk Hogan growing up. This is a strange inversion. Did you at least watch <laughs> Suburban Commando? 
Uh, probably. We I watched a lot of Hulk Hogan when I was little. So I think I probably did see Suburban that. Commando is Hulk Hogan and Christopher Lloyd. Oh, wow. It's great. I would tell you that I'm going to check it out, but I'm not going to check it out, Cody. <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. Well, for this study, the authors say you can measure a movie's level of influence by how often other movies reference it. So, for instance, in Ferris Bueller's Day Off, there's a Star Wars reference in the scene where a parking valet and his buddy go for a joyride in Cameron's dad's Ferrari. This could be used as evidence that Star Wars was influential. References like this one get tracked on IMDb, or the Internet Movie Database. Users generate some of IMDb's content, and one of the things they do, conveniently, is tag references between movies. For this study, researchers scraped data from the more than 5 million movies on IMDb, and they mapped out the networks of references. And movies got higher influence scores the more they had been referenced by other films, and the more those films had been referenced by other films. By the way, the researchers argue that their definition of influence is better than other rankings that are already out there. They say films are both commodities and pieces of art, and a lot of the time rankings treat them as one or the other. Critics rate them on their artistic value, while box office numbers treat them like a pure product. Overall, the researchers gave a score to 47,000 films that had been tagged as referencing or being referenced in other films. They skewed toward Western culture, since IMDb has way more info on English-language movies. Oh, and they didn't just cover movies. They also listed the most influential directors and performers. The most influential director was George Cukor. He directed a lot of comedy films and literary adaptations in the 30s and 40s, including Little Women, The Philadelphia Story, and A Double Life. He also won an Academy Award for Best Director for My Fair Lady in 1964, and he had a long career, working all the way into the 80s. The second most influential director was Victor Fleming, who directed Gone with the Wind and The Wizard of Oz, in the same year, believe it or not, followed by the incomparable Alfred Hitchcock. The top performer was Samuel L. Jackson, followed by Clint Eastwood and then Tom Cruise. Can you believe that? Samuel L. Jackson is above Clint Eastwood. Like... That's influential. That's pretty solid. And for the movies, let's do a countdown. Number five, 2001 A Space Odyssey. Number four, King Kong from 1933. Number three, Psycho, the Alfred Hitchcock classic. Number two was Star Wars, believe it or not. And according to this study, number one, The Wizard of Oz. Guess there really is no place like home. We need to talk about mistletoe. You know the drill. You're standing there at a Christmas party. Your crush walks up to you, points up at the doorway your arch you're standing in. You look up, and there's mistletoe. And then you must kiss that person and fall in love forever. Okay, so maybe I've just been watching too many movies on the Hallmark Channel. But this definitely is the time of year when people hang mistletoe for you to kiss under. Well, I've got a fun fact to kickstart your next mistletoe-fueled romance. That pretty green sprig of mistletoe is actually a poisonous parasite that survives by sucking the life essence from its host. How romantic. Would you like to know a behind-the-scenes fact about this article? Uh-oh. So this is a classic Curiosity article from a couple years ago. And when I wrote it, I was single and bitter. <laughs> <laughs> so that is why it comes off as being written by someone who is single and bitter. That's hilarious, and now I can't wait to hear you explain it in perhaps a less bitter way, but we'll find out, I guess. <laughs> we'll find out. So, first off, the whole mistletoe tradition has kind of murky origins. 
According to history, English servants kicked off the custom of men stealing a kiss from women standing under the mistletoe, and then the trend spread to the higher classes. As part of some early traditions, you had to pluck a berry from the mistletoe with each kiss. No more berries, no more kisses. Before that, a lot of ancient cultures used mistletoe as a medicinal herb. The Greeks and Romans were known to prescribe it for everything from menstrual cramps to epilepsy, and the Celtic Druids would use it to restore fertility. It's even being used today in cancer therapy. In Norse mythology, mistletoe was used on an arrow as a sort of Norse kryptonite to kill the invincible god Baldr. Whether it came from the magic, the mythology, or the gross fact that the berries of some plants secrete a semen-like substance, by the 18th century, it had become a holiday decoration associated with kissing. But like I said, the plant itself is a poisonous parasite. Mistletoe grows on the branches of trees, where it survives by taking water and soil minerals the tree needs to, you know, live. Of course, if the tree dies, the mistletoe dies with it, so it's in the parasite's best interest to only take what it needs. There are more than 1,500 species of mistletoe throughout the world, and a lot of them are toxic, particularly those found in North America. Still, it's not all bad. Birds are known to eat the berries, and two studies found that when scientists removed mistletoe from trees in an area, the bird population suffered. And hey, mistletoe stays green all winter long, so it's kind of magical in that way anyway, right? Actually, it's because it leaches nutrients from the tree it's invaded. Merry Christmas! Wow. <laughs> Savage. Hey, we're back, and it's 2021. Let's do a quick recap of what we learned today before we sign off for the year. Well, we learned that Christmas music sounds like Christmas for a few different reasons. First, it's something you usually only hear this time of year, which makes you associate it with this time of year. And that's called classical conditioning. Sometimes these songs also hold a special place in your memory because of how old you were when you heard them for the first time. A phenomenon called the reminiscence bump refers to how memories from your teens and 20s stick around in your brain more than memories from other times in your life. And the songs employ a lot of the same sounds, like sleigh bells, trumpet fanfares, and simple melodies and chords. It's a perfect recipe for making this time of year sound like this time of year. It's kind of like how I only drink eggnog and brandy in December. Although that's partly for my waistline. Right. If you drank eggnog and brandy in June, I would I would wonder about you. <laughs> <laughs> Not that there's anything wrong with that. Also, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is You is still now my go-to first Christmas song I listen to every year. But I gotta say, there's a Kelly Clarkson song that has a special place in my heart. The only problem is I don't remember the name of it, and I don't understand anything she is saying in the song. <laughs> I am notoriously bad at not understanding song lyrics unless I read them. I don't know if you're the same way. No, I usually understand them. Yeah. I don't know. I feel like I've mentioned this on the show before, but I have a shirt that I actually had custom made when I was first writing about the reminiscence bump because it spoke to me so much because it's like, yeah, it totally makes sense that like the things that I learned about when I was a teen and, you know, in early college are the things that are like make up my identity. So I had my now husband design like a logo that looked like Saved by the Bell because Saved by the Bell is a perfect icon for the reminiscence bump, right? Like it's the thing that you watched at that point in your life, at least if you're our age. And and actually, Cody, the thing is, 
I'm wearing it today. I didn't plan this. <laughs> I've seen it. I know the shirt. I know the shirt you're talking about. <laughs> I love it. Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> uh, nobody gets it. It's like the most niche. It, nobody gets it. <laughs> the cool people get it. The cool sciencey people get it. There are two cool sciencey people then. Well, no. And the listener. Now you get it too. So if you ever find yourself walking around, I don't know, Asheville or somewhere, and you see someone wearing a Saved by the Bell style shirt that says Reminiscence Bump, that's probably Ashley. It's probably me. Also, that Kelly Clarkson song, I just searched for it. It's called Underneath the Tree. Okay. And we learned that a team of researchers says that The Wizard of Oz is the most influential film of all time. They came to that conclusion by looking at the number of references that film had in other films and how often those films were referenced by other films. They used data from IMDb, which happens to have a lot more information on English language films than other films. So the results had a Western skew. But still, it's fun to think about. Have we talked about 2001 A Space Odyssey before? Probably. What do you want to talk about? I have a love-hate relationship with it. Why? The first time I saw it, I didn't get it. I didn't really care for it. Second time I saw it, I loved it. Third time I saw it, I was like, why am I watching this? Fourth time I saw it, I loved it. So it, it totally goes back and forth. It's it's a lot. Have you seen it? I have. Yeah. I mean, it's you have to be in the right headspace, especially, you know, modern audiences. It moves very slowly. I fall asleep very easily during movies. So I've definitely <laughs> fallen asleep a few times to that movie. But I've also watched it all the way through and enjoyed it. See, but the age thing, I think, can be misleading because my wife is a huge fan of Alfred Hitchcock. And I have become a huge fan of Alfred Hitchcock. So there's a film called Notorious, 1946. It's a thriller, like a spy thriller. It is one of the most like, this is a nail biter, tense situation kind of films I have ever seen. And it's more than 75 years old. Like it blows most movies that I've seen that were made in the last 30 years out of the water. It just, it just, I mean, Hitchcock, you know, that rear window is a phenomenal film. Everybody should watch. Rebecca is a romantic psychological thriller. Hitchcock did things with film that I haven't seen done since. He was just a genius. And I think he transcends time. So if you think that, you know, Hitchcock, oh, it's old. It'll be slow. It's black and white. Like, don't let that prejudice come to the forefront because you're missing out on some very good film with that guy. Okay. I had a lot to say about Hitchcock. <laughs> Did Hitchcock get a mention in this list? Yeah, he was no, uh, the third most influential director. Oh, cool. Okay, good. Yeah. I didn't remember that part. Yeah. There were a lot of there were a lot of numbers and lists. We used to be all about numbers on this show. We did. And we also learned that mistletoe is a poisonous parasite that sucks the life from its host. Many cultures have used mistletoe for medicinal purposes. But by the 18th century, it had also become a holiday decoration associated with kissing. There are more than 1,500 species of mistletoe throughout the world, and a lot of them are toxic. But birds like to eat them. And that is appropriate because Ashley seems to feel that mistletoe is for the birds. At the time when I was writing this, I thought it was pretty apt that happy people kissing each other were doing it beneath a parasite that sucks the life out of its host. Just thought that was appropriate. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but your feelings have changed now. I mean, I still find it kind of weird, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't know. Why do we why do we put conifer trees in our houses every year? I, there's right. a lot of it's a lot there's of strange lot of traditions. Stuff. Yeah, but they're fine. Just do it because we've always done it. Right. Right. Do you have any Christmas traditions that are just like off the beaten path? You or your family just came up with? No, they're all pretty normal to you. Well, I mean, my sister's vegan, so we have a tofu turkey that we make from scratch every year. That's that's our thing. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. It's actually really good. It's a really good. Like, I'm not vegan, but it's a pretty good, pretty good main dish. Isn't it, isn't that called a tofurkey? See, tofurkey is the brand name. Oh. This is a scratch-made tofu turkey. We press all the tofu ourselves. We make the stuffing. We give it this lovely sesame oil glaze and make this mushroom gravy. It's really delicious. Everything about that sounds delicious. And with that, that's our last story and our last recap. And Curiosity Daily is going to take a short break for the holidays. We'll be back with new episodes starting Wednesday, January 5th. So keep an eye out for that in a couple weeks. And there may be an adjusted release schedule next year. You may see episodes Wednesday through Friday, maybe not five days a week. Still working through some stuff. But either way, you will hear Ashley and me, even though we're moving on to other things. So I should probably leave you with final thoughts about a really long run that we had. Yeah. <laughs> thousand episodes, three years. Three and a half. Well over three and a half. Yeah. We've, this is a long run. Daily episodes that whole time. It's been great. I mean, I will say, I will say that this show has been a part of me. I have put a part of myself into this show. Like, if you hear this show, you know me a little bit because it's it's got a chunk of my personality in it. And you, listener, have been so good. The audience has been so good getting emails from people talking about things they've learned or or even corrections about things that they heard because it just shows how engaged they are with the stuff that we say. And I mean, all of that has been so lovely. And I feel like I'm just in a big conversation with a bunch of people all the time about really cool science. And like, you can't ask for more. It's, it's wonderful. It's been rad. And I can promise you, Ashley and I have read every single email you have ever submitted through the website or sent to us directly at the podcast email address or tweeted at us. Like, we're not so big that we're getting, like, hundreds of thousands of messages a day. We are absolutely the size where every note goes straight to us. So anything you've said, even if we haven't replied, which I always feel so bad. Like, I, you know, we are busy doing a daily podcast, so we get a lot of emails. We got to do a lot of things. So I'll read one. I'll be like, oh, I'm so glad I got that. I'm so upset. I'm not going to have time to respond. I know I should just do the thing where you just send, like, a line back. You're like, thanks so much. I love this. But... I don't know. I'm too much of a, I don't know, perfectionist or something. So I always think I have to do more. So you just, you end up not hearing from me. Uh, it's not a best practice, but you know. Can I actually uh, address one correction that came in several months ago that we never did? And it's like when I was a waitress and I would wake up three months later being like, I never got them their ranch dressing. What? <laughs> it's, it's like on my mind. What? <laughs> um, we got a correction on when we ran the story about pluots and hybrid fruits, a listener named Chad in Martinstown, Missouri, wrote in to say a hybrid fruit does not result directly from pollinating the flower of one plant with a pollen of another. The hybridization actually occurs in the seed, which are now a genetic mixture of both parents. And then those seeds need to be planted. So there was one more step to the hybridization process that we didn't talk about. And we we made it seem like it happened in the step before. So that's what I wanted to say. Thank you, Chad. I'm sorry it took me this long to address that. 
<laughs> on the last episode that we're doing together. Did you have anything else you wanted to say? <laughs> we should probably end on something other than that. Um, Maybe if you send us an email a long time ago, it'll get a long, belated, delayed response. Because we got an email from a kid named Crofton, who is nine years old in Atlanta, and he listens to our podcast every day. And it kills me that I never replied to Crofton to say how awesome it is that you're nine and you're so curious that you're listening to us. I don't understand half the stuff we talk about. And you're like a quarter of my age and you're able to follow it. So good on you. That is commendable. And one other thing I want to say, just while we're pouring our hearts out, the moments that stand out to me and have always stood out to me, and the reason why I podcast are the specific moments where I get something specific from a listener. Like if I wake up to a tweet where somebody gets my Stephen Wilson reference, that makes my day. Because I'm like, oh, I said something obscure and it connected with somebody and they cared and it made them happy a little bit. And then they replied. Like, that's what this is all about. And I hope that in whatever ventures Ashley and I continue to do in the future, we're able to have those connections. And you as a listener can always support your favorite artists and performers by just saying anything to them. Because in a lot of cases, at least for ours, that thing that you say will stick with them. I'm not the kind of guy who can be a scientist and build a rocket or build an electric car, but I'm the kind of guy that can say stupid things that make people laugh sometimes. And Ashley's the kind of person that could build an electric car or go to the moon probably. <laughs> but she also makes people laugh sometimes a lot. She's made me laugh a lot over the years. Uh, and I hope we've both made you laugh a lot over the years. And whatever I end up doing in 2022, I am bummed that it won't be with Ashley because she is like the best person I've ever worked with on anything. Agreed. Same. <laughs> it's bizarre that we got along as well as we did. But uh, if you ever get the chance to work with this human being, oh my gosh, do it. It's uh, <laughs> It's been a good time. And uh, I hope that I hope that showed through with the show. Yeah, no, same same exact thing for Cody. Cody's such a hard worker. Everything he makes is so meaningful to him and he puts so much of himself into it. And and he's just really easy to work with. We're just yeah, it's just great. Shocking to hear. <laughs> Who knew that working in some weird abandoned warehouse for a small startup in 2017 would turn into this? Yeah, who knew? I didn't. Neither did I. The writer for today's influential film story was Mae Rice. Our managing editor is Ashley Hamer, who is also a writer on today's episode. Our producer and audio editor is Cody Goff. Have a great week and a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year or whatever other holiday you celebrate. There's a lot of them. I, I just know Christmas because I have a day off. And thank you so much for listening. Join us again in 2022 to learn something new in just a few minutes. And until then, stay curious.